Hi, and welcome to She Geeks Out, a podcast where we geek out about all the things. I'm Rachel. And I'm Felicia. Hello, Felicia. Hello, Rachel. How you doing? You know, hanging in there like everyone else's. (laughs) Hanging in there virtually like everyone else's, for sure. Same on my... And um, I am so excited, though, because we are here with the lovely, amazing Liz Cass. Um, Liz is not only a personal friend of mine, um, but is also a producer, educator, arts leader, opera singer, and founder of the amazing Lola, which stands for Local Opera Local Artists in the lovely Austin, Texas. And as if that's not enough, the executive director of the Armstrong Community Music School. So hi and welcome and thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy, busy life to hang with us. Oh my gosh, it's such a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yay. Um, so let's just like get right into it. I want to yeah. hear, because I, you know, even though we've been friends for a while, I don't know your journey. Let's hear it. <laughs> How'd you get to all these things? I know. And I feel like I've, Rachel has shared uh, only good things and I'm excited to learn more directly from the source. Oh, thanks. Um, well, it's it's been quite a journey. I got into this whole music thing when I was really young. I just had, uh, I was drawn to singing in particular. And so I started t- singing, taking voice lessons, uh, stayed on that track for a while to become a professional um, opera singer. And as time has gone by as you're an, if you're a musician out there then you know that you kind of piece your life together so um you know you'll have gigs uh but then you might do some teaching and then you might be like oh i kind of like teaching so uh i was really really into teaching and started um teaching at the armstrong community music school 16 years ago when i moved to austin and at the time the school was part of the opera company here in town So it was really cool because I would perform with the opera company. I would teach with the school. And then I started doing some arts administration as well. And as that uh, started to progress, since I was in the environment of being in a music school and an opera company, I started to learn all the different things that it took to run an opera company and a nonprofit, the different departments, um, you know, in terms of like marketing and fundraising and promotion, all of that stuff. and production budgets and and things like that. And so then when, uh, after I'd been in Austin for 10 years and I thought, you know, it'd be great to start an opera company, like a smaller opera company here in town to fulfill some of this vision that I had that opera could be more than just the traditional opera stuff. Um, And so when I had the impetus to do that, I also had some, some foundation in having worked with the opera company in the music school and understanding what it would take to start an organization. So, um, yeah, I think like all of those, that whole pathway gave me the skills to be able to do the things that, uh, that I needed to do to start the opera company. And then, um, and that has given me a foundation to be able to do some executive leadership for a music school as well. I mean, it's, you know, these life finds you, right? You just, you, you take one step, one direction and, and, uh, you know, another door opens up, et cetera, et cetera. So now, um, instead of like, quitting singing and starting teaching and then quitting teaching and starting administration. I don't quit anything. I just keep adding more things <laughs> to the plate. <laughs> <laughs> and it's been met with, um, you know, 
mostly success, I would say, but uh, a lot of things I've had to learn through failure as well. Are there things that you, um, that you find yourself liking more than others as part of this work? Because there's so much that you're doing. Hmm. At times. Yeah, it just depends. You know, um, I've been able to do some really fun shows that have toured to different places and sort of alternative operatic experiences as a performer. I mean, I just love, love, love that. Um, but, uh, it, but it also there are these other skills that I have now and I'd be sad if I wasn't able to put some of these other skills to practice. And sometimes, Sometimes every, every bit of it is a pain, but mostly I find joy in all of it. Wow. And it's just a matter of like shifting the focus around here and there, you know, between, between all the different, the, the different things. It's wild. Cause it's like, you're really using both sides of your brain a lot. Like it's, you know, you're using so much creativity, but there's so much on the operational business side of things as well. If it's, it seems like it's a rare, it's a rare person to really enjoy both. Yeah, well, and I have to say, too, that um, it's a real gift to be able to assemble the right people on your team and to work with the right people. I've been really fortunate mm -hmm. to to be able to assemble good folks and to be able to walk into situations where there were already already capable people in their positions. I mean, nobody could do it alone. I couldn't do any of this stuff alone. I mean, I have to know, like, okay, there's certain things that are learnable skills, right? Like uh, any of the administrative stuff is really learnable. It's just like, do you want to spend the time learning it? Um, so I, ha I would say I have like a basic working knowledge of all the administrative stuff, but I also know like, okay, that I know a little bit about that. And I know enough to know that I need to find somebody else who wants to do that and is a real expert at that. Right on. I think that's such a hard thing too sometimes when you just dive in, especially leading nonprofits, leading small organizations, um, when you don't have the resources to bring on staff or get help, you're like, I'll just do it all. And then realizing that there are things that either you don't know that you should bring in people or that there are things, and this is something that Rachel and I deal with a lot, that we love, but we shouldn't be doing because we should just pay other people to do it for us. <laughs> we are both in a perfect world data sheet, Excel lovers, <laughs> data entry lovers. Um, so yes, in a perfect world. But um, I want to go back to sort of talking a little bit more about um, really what kind of motivated you to start the nonprofit. Like what was that impetus to kind of like dig into that and create something when you were, you know, doing more on the performance side? Well, there, there were a couple things that happened. It's a confluence of events, you know, the, um, the housing situation of 2008 causing a recession really affected performing arts organizations and um, you know opera companies a lot of regional opera companies especially in the united states felt that uh, so that opened up this kind of opportunity for smaller i hate to use the word scrappier because it's not that it's a less quality opera company experience but it opened that situation opened the door for smaller companies that did have a little bit maybe more grit or uh, desire to like really get people to get their hands dirty. There were several singers like me across the United States that started opera companies, mm. um, small opera companies at this time. And so like we didn't know each other necessarily. Now there are some networks for smaller opera companies, but um, 
Yeah, it was interesting that it all happened at the same time, which is why I think it had something to do with the housing crisis. Mm -hmm. There was less opera, opera, the opera companies we knew and on a regional level were really scaling back. So this opened the door for more opportunities and people I think were, they were interested in seeing opera in a different way. And like myself, there are a lot of other singers out there who did want to experience opera in more than just the traditional setting. Like I've always had a desire to bring opera to people in bars or just where they were so that everybody could understand that opera is for them. Opera is about the human experience and there's, you know, it can, it can oftentimes be like a really, um, it can feel like a big class separator that art form can. And um, yeah, it's just kind of my, my goal forever to, to bring people together through opera. So this opportunity presented itself. I had the right skill set at the time and um, I didn't, had never raised money before, but I contacted a friend of mine who's a stage director and who knows how to put together budget uh, production budgets. And she'd done some for the opera company, the Austin Opera Company. And I'd worked with her a bit on that. And I said, what will it take? And she said, uh, it'll take $20,000 to put this first show together. And I was like, great, I'm going to crowdfund that money. And that's, that's what we did. And so we were already like a year out assembling the team and trying to do it correctly. I also, from a creative standpoint, had a lot of friends who, um, a lot of women friends who were kind of not singing and not exploring who they were as artists. And they were fabulous artists, but because they had made some different decisions in their life, um, rather than following the typical trajectory of an opera singer and going like to do a, these, these certain programs, uh, going to Germany or going to get management. Some of them decided to teach or have children or start like a life and they didn't want to live out of a suitcase. And I thought it would, it was a real shame if the only option they had was this path that had already been paved, you know, carved out and paved over and over and over again. And so I had this idea to do an all-female version of the opera La Boheme, and we call it La Femme Boheme. Um, <laughs> and it was really, really extraordinary. And um, we, my stage director friend Rebecca and, and artistic partner in Lola, she's the artistic director, she decided to stage it as all of the women were living as um, people born as women, but across a, a wide gender spectrum. And this was in 2014. And so, um, yeah, like trans stuff wasn't talked about as much then. Like it was just getting going. I mean, it's always been talked about, right? It's always been there. But um, the world started to really pay attention to it more. And so the timing of that was really extraordinary. And uh, yeah, so that did that answer your question? I feel like I took a road that yeah, no, in, I mean, a curve, in a curvy <laughs> That's how life is, right? <laughs> yeah, and it, it like fostered like 10 more questions in my brain as you were talking. For it. Um, well, one, just for the most recent one is, can you just talk about the story of La Boheme and how you translated into La Femme Boheme? How did that, sure. which, yeah. So that fits really well for like anybody um, because anybody who's in the arts because La Boheme is about the Bohemians. Um, it's about the, the original opera is about these uh, guys who are all living in this apartment in Paris and it's a beautifully romantic apartment usually it has a you know they're like on on the top of the building with a beautiful skylight or something you know but they're very poor and they're you know just just scraping by and there's a poet and a musician and a painter and uh then these two women kind of enter their lives um 
Mimi is a seamstress and she's also like poor and kind of bohemian and it's hinted at uh well actually it's pretty blatant later on in the opera that she's also like a courtesan so she's a like a you know a prostitute as all good women in operas are true <laughs> truth i roll and <laughs> And then there's also, then there's the, the fiery Mimi, who is, um, sorry. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Musetta. I was like, I know I've seen La Boheme, but <laughs> they had the same name. Oh my God. <laughs> sorry. Mimi and Mimi. Yeah. All the women are named. The accent is slightly different. <laughs> <laughs> Good catch. She's on it. Musetta uh, is another woman in the show as well, and she's Marcello's girl, on again, off again girlfriend. They have a tumultuous relationship, but Mimi and Rodolfo super duper fall in love, and then uh, Mimi has this cold that seems like, but really it's like tuberculosis or something, and uh, she and Rodolfo were like breaking up and it's kind of it's unclear but maybe she wants to break up because she doesn't want to put him through the pain of having to deal with it and he doesn't want to have to deal with it so they're they're all young this is the first time they've ever really experienced like oh the world is you know real harsh yeah we can make our art and the world can seem like unfair because we don't have money all the time but this is the moment when Mimi's like sick for real that it's a, uh, you know, one of those moments that your life changes forever that you can't, it's like, you can't unsee that you can't not experience that. So the, the theme and the story is very universal and changing it over to being all women was like, no problem. I mean, uh, the opera is written, you know, there, there's a, it's written in the treble clef and the bass clef. And so any of us, like I was singing, a, um, a man's role. And so I just sang it an octave up, but in the bass clef still. And uh, no, nothing had to be transposed. It was great. Easy. Was awesome. Easy. Yeah. So, sorry, just a quick side question. Um, what are your thoughts on Rent? Oh, I mean. Because it's like, that's a translation of the story for like a more modern quote unquote generation. And well, I'm curious if like, you know, like, like how stuff like that may or may not impact this whole thinking around like bringing opera to the masses or bringing opera to people who might not access it normally. Um, just curious if that like conversation with like movies versus or like stage shows versus opera ever comes into play. And by the way, I was thinking like as you were t telling, describing the story, I was like, oh, what is, is it like Avenue Q, but like just darker. So <laughs> I'm glad that you went to Rent. <laughs> so. Yeah. And, and, and no puppets. Right. No puppet. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's great. Rent the rent's great, right? It's great, but it's not the same thing. It's the it's the uh, because with opera, it's the voice. I mean that specific type of singing, and also like if you're sitting in a room experiencing that type of singing, and like when we did the production, it was really you're really up close. So you're like in a bar, so. Um, but but it can still be powerful in its own way. I mean, I found Rent to be really powerful. Um, the story is so sad. I liked that they updated it, though. Um, and just in opera in general, you know, trying to look at these classic themes and change how the woman always comes off as 
I don't know. It's like she's got to die or something. And I don't know. There, there are a lot of stories too. Like there's the opera Carmen where Don Jose kills her in the end. And then he's left on stage crying. And I'm like, well, what? You just <laughs> killed her. <laughs> well, she, she had it coming, you know, like all that kind of crap. So we, we like to really look at the, um, the art form and, and think of new ways to reimagine traditional works. And so I guess that's kind of like rent. And uh, we also want to make sure that we're exploring the themes. And if there are those themes, we're not just taking it for granted. Like, oh yeah, the woman always dies. It's like, well, why were we looking at it that way? Why were we, why were female characters portrayed that way? Like, let's explore that and see if we, if we have something to say about that. Mm -hmm. You, and you mentioned that that opera, there's like a class divide for the people who tend to listen to it. Um, do you find that your audience has skewed differently than the traditional opera goer? And how is that going? Yeah, it's going really well. Actually, we've had experiences um, on both sides of that coin that are great. So folks who have experienced opera a lot in their lives, because let's face it, like, Opera takes a little bit of time and a little bit for your ear to get used to. You know, it's classical music typically, and even modern operas are, tend to be challenging musically. Um, and then there's the language. Oftentimes their classic operas are lit, written in another language. So if, if you have spent your life working and you don't have a lot of leisure time to invest in understanding opera, it can feel like it's not for you. But um, you know, my goal is to really make sure that people know that there's an immediacy to it. It's theater. It's the human experience. So we've had folks who are tr traditionally have been to, um, you know, like operas at the Met and they go, they go to Santa Fe every summer to see the opera and they come experience our operas in like a bar setting. And it's awesome. I'm so glad that they get that experience. And then we've had people who would never dream of like attending an opera at the Long Center or maybe that's uh, sorry, the Long Center is the Performing Arts Center here in Austin. So they might not feel like that's for them. And then if they come to something that we do, you know, hopefully they'll feel inclined to go go see something else as well. But it, even if, if not, they've made the effort to come and share their time with us. And we've definitely had a lot of people attend our shows who have never attended an opera before. So um, that is like a gold star in my book. <laughs> That's awesome. Are, are there any ways that you found um, that you'd be willing to share that have been effective in terms of like the marketing? Because I feel like that part is probably such a key piece of the puzzle in that um, sort of bridging that divide from, you know, getting people actually coming so they can then access and engage with the music in that different way. But if they've never done it and they're hesitant or there's fear or there's other stuff going on, like how, like, like what's worked in terms of actually bringing people in? I asked this because um, here in Boston a couple years ago, I actually attended an opera in the round in this really small theater. And the reason I went with my friends is because we got really cheap tickets because there was a whole marketing push where they were like, young people, come to the opera. And we we're like, $10, sure. Like, we got nothing better to do on a Friday night. And we had a great time. And I remember it was challenging because it was sung in, I forget what language, maybe German. But, um, you know, we like read the story. We went there. It was up in 
you know, personal in our faces. And we were like, yeah, this was, this was a good night out. But I'm just curious if like, that's stuff that you've, you've been, you know, kind of thinking about or other things that may have been impactful. Yeah, totally. The, um, the ticket sales, the ticket price is a huge one. So we really try to keep it low or do a pay what you can. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the first offer that we did was $10 of course, like $10, right? I, that's so interesting mm-hmm. to hear you say that because that's the idea. It's like, well, for $10, I mean, people kind of yeah. will do anything for $10. Like I can buy a coffee for $10. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, the, this brew, we do a brewery series. We have a concert series at a, at a local brewery and it's always 10 bucks straight mm-hmm. up, you know? Um, and so I think that ticketing makes a difference. We have a great network, uh, a great PR network and nice press contacts in town that help us with um, the publications in and around Austin. Um, Word of mouth, I think probably word of mouth is the biggest one. And keeping it fresh and fun. I mean, even, even when folks are trying to make opera fun and accessible, there is still, I think, some pressure to make it this very highbrow intellectual experience Mm -hmm. um, because some people do appreciate that part of opera. But if you're trying to make it accessible for everyone and you throw around terms that people don't know, if you're like, oh, well, this opera doesn't have any recitative and you move on, you know, (laughs) people will be like, well, what? I'm sorry. You've already lost me. Gone. Apparently that's not in my sphere. You know, (laughs) so like breaking it down and making it as friendly and as regular as possible, I think has been effective for us. Um, I think our social media is pretty fun and fresh. We can always improve. And opera is always, I think, gonna be a little bit of a hard sell. Um, But I'm pretty proud of our communication so far. And on, we, we are lucky enough to live in Austin where it is a place that people do try things. Mm-hmm. They'll, they'll try new things. Like I know it's different in different places, different, different cities. Uh, you really have to like prove yourself and not that as an artist, you shouldn't be trying to up your game all the time. Right. But in Austin, people really are like, great. You want to do something, go do it. They're they're The attitude is always very encouraging. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is huge. That's just the culture here. So it's a great place to start things. That, that reminds me of a question that I should have asked earlier on is how did you get into opera specifically? You mentioned music, but it's, since it's not something that is, you know, rent. I wish I knew, you know, I get asked that question a lot and there's not like this moment where I was like, yes, opera is for me. Um, who, oh, I was listening to, you know, uh, do you know Glennon Doyle? Yeah. So I was like watching a little video that she posted on Facebook and she was talking about writing and how people like, how do you know if you're a writer? And uh, one way you can tell is if you're envious. <laughs> I know it's like, you know, kind of like a four letter word. But uh, if somebody, if you're if watching somebody do something and you're envious, like that's one way for you to tell like, oh, well, maybe I should be doing that. And so like, I remember being really young and watching people on stage and performing and it was torture. Like if I went to a live performance, it doesn't matter what it was like nutcracker, anything. (laughs) 
And I should also back up and say that my parents are classical musicians. So my dad was a concert. I was about to ask and say, like, how are you even at a concert? <laughs> I, I know. I, I was at concerts. I grew up going to concerts all the time. I was at, and they're pianists. So I was at piano concerts. I mean, I was exposed to this fabulous music from the get-go. And also my dad's mother was a singer. Um, she was an opera singer, but uh, or classical singer, I should say. I don't know that she was ever particularly in an opera, but she was a classical singer. But by the time I knew her, she was definitely not singing anymore. So I never really got to hear her sing. But apparently her voice is legendary. So it's kind of like in the genes and cultures in my family. So, um, you know, it, it, it's, a it's a natural fit. But I also know that from a time I was very young, being anywhere and watching anyone on stage just 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 made me so mad <laughs> and it was interesting because i like i didn't have like i couldn't put a label on it were you mad because you wanted to also be doing it or were you mad because you were like i don't like this get me out <laughs> that's great uh i was mad because i wanted to be doing it and okay. like I, I would go to these choir concerts at the university where my dad was teaching and they'd have all these singers up there that, you know, they were mature singers who could sing. And I was like five years old. And I'm like, I know I can do that. I know I can. And so then I started singing in the talent shows. But I would get really, really nervous. Like I would have this stage fright. And so no one, and it's interesting to me because my parents were performers, but nobody in my house ever talked about performance anxiety. Hmm. No one that was ever like in leading a, a school choir that I was in or anything. Nobody ever talked about performance anxiety. So I literally, and I never asked. So I was literally inside my little brain going like dying. Cause I wanted to be on stage so bad. And also thinking that there was something terribly wrong with me and that I was obviously an imposter because I had stage fright. Wow. That interesting? So interesting. That is fascinating. Also, next next time somebody asks you, how did you get into it? I don't think you have to say, I don't know. You definitely yeah, know. Yeah, I think you know. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we just heard it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so funny because as you were sharing your story, it made me um, sort of flashback to my own childhood because my parents were definitely not, not performers or, and not musicians at all, but because they ha didn't have that growing up, they wanted their children to have access to that and so what they did with us all of i have a brother and sister with all three of us at various points when we were very young they took us to uh, a classical music concert and then they asked us which instrument do you want to play and so at like four or five years old i was taken to this orchestra concert in philadelphia and i was like the violin and so that's how i got into violin my brother played the cello my sister played the piano but um it's just so interesting hearing like a kind of similar path where it was like oh i want to do that like that's something i want to do at a very young age now to be fair i don't play violin really anymore but <laughs> but i do think that it's um you know this idea of access and giving people that possibility before you put in place those self-imposed barriers where you're like, oh, this is not for me, or I can't do that, or I'm not gonna be part of this this scene or whatever it might be is really interesting, so yeah. Absolutely, and there are lots of programs now that really uh, get into the communities and make sure that these things are sustainable. So a kid, if a kid is drawn to something, and of course, how do you know you're gonna be drawn to something unless you're exposed to it? Mm -hmm. um, but when you're drawn to something that there's some sustainable there's a sustainable program in place to help support that because musicians come from all over and come from every single kind of background 
and to limit that, um, you know, would be a real, a real crime. Oh, also to limit anybody to the access of just having the enriching experience. Like you said, you didn't, you, you, you don't play currently, but, um, I'd be so interested to know if that opened up a world for you or connected you to humanity in a way that you wouldn't have been if you didn't have access to the violin for a, a time in your life. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, um, I was part of, uh, I was part of this, you know, this group growing up pretty much, I played through all the way through college and after, um, but just getting me, getting to be able to meet different musicians. Like I, I've met and played with Yo-Yo Ma and Ricardo Muti and like all sorts of amazing, what? awesome people. <laughs> yeah. Back, back in the day. Wow. And, just like drop, name drop those, I know, those everywhere. I have, I have to, I'll have to ask my mom if she can find the picture. I had this hilarious picture of um, my little brother and myself. I must've been like six, five or six years old he was probably three and we had met Ricardo Moody and so my parents were like take a picture and it's this hilarious like black and white photo and I look so pissed off because I was very sick that day and they made me go anyway because obviously like how would you pass up a chance to have your child play with this amazing renowned international you know composer and uh, amazing musician and so I, I look so angry and then my little brother is like super happy right next to me but yeah no um yeah I think music in general like even just from the standpoint we were talking earlier I think you mentioned Rachel like left brain right brain like being able to process information in a different way that if you don't have access to thinking about this you can't apply that to things like math and um you know musicality and just like it's not just about learning how to sing the notes or learning how to play something. It's about expressing through that and how you can, you know, really convey that story or those feelings, um, which I think is, it's a really valuable skill in general. So, wow. I feel like I've just like tapped into this whole side of my life that I've like left behind. Wow, Liz, you just like, you just opened a Pandora's box. <laughs> well, well, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great, that is a great example of how music is such a connector. Like you yeah. have, if you have music or art of any kind in your life, you're more deeply connected to the human experience. It makes you have to build skills in yourself. Like, uh, you know, like you were just talking about, I definitely had to get over the stage fright. My desire to, to sing, and I don't know what was leading me. I honestly don't know what was leading me because it was very painful. It was painful to watch others perform. And then it was painful to get up and perform myself. Hmm. So it's, and, and I don't know, I don't know what pushed me, but there was a driving force within me that just kept going. So how did you over, how do you overcome your own stage fright? It's easy. <laughs> you're, like, you're like, share your secrets, please. <laughs> it's so easy and simple. You won't even believe it. This is so what many. you do. You just put yourself in front of other people and you make music. Over and over <laughs> and over and over again. Again and again and again and again and again. There's no, <laughs> you've heard this a million times. There's no way, there's no way, uh, there's no way out but through, right? So you just. So true. I will tell you. I just had a, I just, I, I watched The Voice and James Taylor is the coach uh, currently and he actually gave advice. He said, take 50 breaths, count 50 um, times backwards and as you take breaths, like 50, 49, whatever. And then by the time, at some point in that period, you just start, you just relax. So there's that tip. There's that hot take. Great. <laughs> reducing performance anxiety. If somebody can focus 
on that right before they perform. That's that's great. Yeah, yeah. people have little tricks for calming down. That's true. But one of my things is like if I'm getting ready to go on stage, like say it's a big performance, and it's I'm doing it from memory. Um, inevitably, the thought I will have before walking out on stage is. I don't know any of my words. I don't know any of my, what are all my words? What are all of my words? And all you have to do is remember the first word and then everything goes. But well, I'll typically have that thought and then I follow it by this one. Eh, I mean, if it, if I fall, if I fall on my face and the whole thing crashes, like nobody died, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine yes. if it's terrible. That's totally the way I go down with all of this stuff. It's like, just, you know what? No one's dying. Is that, I'm not, I'm not a brain surgeon, so it's fine. Um, but I, and as someone who's seen you perform several times, I would never have known that you were at all nervous. So yeah, that's, good job. The, that's the trick. Thank you. You want people to feel comfortable and you want to share it. And it is a weird experience and it is exhilarating. And then once those nerves do go away, um, you know, sometimes it's like a second or sometimes a friend of mine was just talking about, uh, he's a pianist and he was talking about the worst is if you're totally calm and you go out to perform, which is really disorienting. And then all of a sudden you get nervous in the middle of performing. Oh no. Like, I was like, how is that the worst? <laughs> and it, the thing is it can be, it can be unpredictable sometimes. And, you know, I spent years performing where I was like, oh, this is great. I'm fine. I'm fine. And then, uh, I don't know when it was about seven or it was like eight years ago, I was in the middle of a performance and I'm like, I have to stand up and sing in a minute. I don't know if I can do this. Why is my head hot? Like all of a sudden oh, my no. freaking <laughs> out and it was fine. And I got this like awesome review in the paper and I was just like, <laughs> you're like, I guess I should get nervous time. more often. <laughs> Amazing. It is. It's so funny because it's like, you know, you try to, maybe it has something to do with control. Like, like we try to master something and we try to control it. And we're in art, we're dealing with the human, human condition. So how much can we really control anyway? And then, you know, your body and your mind sort of show you sometimes in the middle of performance, like you better just speak from the heart because I might start freaking out right now. So real. So real. Um, so uh, last I saw you were, you were running a perform and starring in Lardo Weeping. Yeah. And which was incredible. Um, I'm curious to know what is currently in the works. So uh, that was the first workshop performance of Lardo Weeping. And we are currently in, uh, in the full production mode. So all of it has been composed. Um, and it's this amazing piece of music composed by Peter Stopchinsky and the original playwright who we're working very closely with, uh, Terry Galloway and Donna Nudd. They're just unbelievable people. <laughs> Look them up. They're doing incredible work. Um, they're based in Florida right now, and uh, they do really powerful, hilarious, and, and tough theatrical work. Um, and this piece is about a very, Lardo Weeping is about a very uh, reclusive, eccentric, intelligent, tortured woman, Dinah Lafarge. And um, the piece culminates, she's wearing a bodysuit, and the piece culminates with her tearing off, like there are different parts of her body that are Velcroed and she tears them off. So there's this real visceral, um, 
moment where you can hear the body parts being torn off and where she has some jokes about them but basically is the, it's the commentary of tearing yourself apart and putting yourself back together every day mm-hmm. um from the perspective of a of a woman it's a really interesting piece so that will be in the spring summer of 2021 the full production uh will go up and so we're working right now on getting the the suit the bodysuit designed and cutting part of the show because altogether it's about two hours and it's a really a one woman show for the most part myself singing it's really hard to sing for two hours straight without stopping so we're trying to truncate it to an hour and a half um, and figure out those things so that it's uh, healthy for the voice because it's a really great operatic piece and I think the operatic voice fits it well but there are some limits to how much somebody can sing um, at any given time. So that's where we are with that piece. That's incredible. How did you come to it? What's your process? Like, what is that? Since you're, you're not just a performer, you're everything you're, and you've built a team. Uh, my friend, Peter, the composer, um, he and I were talking about a commission piece for my opera company. And so that's how this was born. It's been years that we've been working on this. And uh, my, my opera company is six years old. And again, I should say my partner is Rebecca Herman. She's the artistic producer and I'm the executive producer. We, do a, we make a lot of the decisions together though. It's really just mostly the two of us. So our friend and collaborator, Peter, has written this piece and um, we commissioned it from him. And it took a while to actually find this, the subject and the story that we wanted to tell. And then he remembered he'd seen this show, uh, Lardo Weeping, and he'd um, met Terry Galloway through his girlfriend, Lana Leslie, who's one of the rude mechanicals in Austin, Texas. It's a really an amazing theater organization. So all of these people connected to other people, the right story I think is getting told. Um, and it seems like a perfect fit for the kind of art that we want to be producing and a really great piece to be our first commission for sure. Awesome. Awesome. I'm excited for this, although it's coming out next year, I have to wait a little bit, but I also want to talk a little bit about what's currently happening because what you do is so based around performance and audience people. And you were talking a lot about that sort of in-person aspect and getting people in bars and breweries and connecting. And so what's been shifting, if anything, in terms of this virtual world that we're now living in? Oh, gosh, that's so that's just really such a, a deep dive. I'm glad you brought this up and that we're talking about it. So um we canceled we had to cancel one of our brewery concerts in march and then we were also producing a concert version of this new opera called good country which is um written about an actual transgender stagecoach driver who was born a woman but lived as a man um in the wild west and it's a great story and the music's wonderful composed by keith allegretti and uh the playwright is cecilia raker and uh anyway we had to cancel that as well so there we we felt the burn of having to cancel two little little small concert things so it wasn't like a huge production Mm -hmm. um so we've just been sitting tight because we're such a small operation things are okay for us right now and it feels good to go ahead and start planning for something a year out. Mm. Now with the music school, so um, it's a community music school. 
we're a nonprofit also. And we really are built on music for everyone, regardless of any barrier, similar to what we were talking about earlier. Um, and excellence in instruction and listening to the community and offering programming where it's needed. So we have a lot of lessons that take lessons and classes that take place in the school. And then we also do a lot of community programs outside of the school. So all of our one on one private instruction lessons have been moved online. And so teachers are teaching from their homes. All of our early childhood music classes, um, they've been moved online. And also we have a little piano class that has been moved online. So everything is virtual. And even our summer session, our first summer session of early childhood, we've already planned will be virtual. Mm -hmm. So uh, because of Zoom lessons and some things that we were already practicing, that we're doing okay there. You know, of course, the concern, the big concern is the individual teachers and how they are faring in this. I mean, most of them, like all of us, have lost several gigs. I myself as a performer have lost several gigs because my um, livelihood is greatly diversified. It's not as much a concern for me, but some people it's really tough. Like if you can't perform, you're not, you're not making a paycheck at all. Um, so we're trying to give our teachers as many opportunities as possible to, um, to make money and to continue teaching. That's the best we can do as far as performing at all or like live streaming from homes. Mm -hmm. We've done a little bit, you know, I think it's some things that are happening are really cool. But I think everybody gets a little tired of Zoom also, right? Like, yeah, what are you talking about? I don't understand. What are you talking about? <laughs> I'm like, no, yes, of course. <laughs> as we're on our 5000th Zoom in the past. And I think today's date is April. 14,622nd. <laughs> Zoom, Zoom fatigue is real. I think it's something that we're all going to be exploring. Yeah, you know, so, for sure. Yeah, I was just, I was reading some articles earlier this week about this whole virtual fatigue and everything and how a lot of it ties back to the fact that when we're in person, we can't see ourselves. But in a mm. Zoom or a Google Hangout or whatever, um, that awareness of yourself is always there and mm. so your brain is actually working overtime because it's it's not like sitting around a table where like if we were podcasting in person you know maybe Rachel and I would just be looking at you or you'd just be looking at one of us but now we have all these different things and all of this information that's just like dumped on our brains and it's it is actually really exhausting <laughs> so yeah I've got a light here and a microphone over here and I had to put <laughs> lipstick on my face because I don't know you know anytime you I'm look like, gorgeous <laughs> we, we, I guess we appreciate that <laughs> I gotta tell you it has been really funny with these because we were like maybe we'll put them maybe we'll make these YouTube videos and yeah. then we're like nah never mind we'll just keep it podcast and we'll have our faces not shown, but then we don't tell our lovely guests. So it's a, it's now we should probably, we should probably tell them because we feel bad because you all look lovely and we're like schlubby. So, well, you know, if you ever want to like take a picture for promo or anything, then we're ready. Then we're camera ready. That's so true. Well, you are. And Felicia looks great. You're I told my kind. team earlier, I was like, I, I actually showered this morning because I was going to have a video <laughs> call with a client. And I was like, why am I showering? Like video doesn't, there's no smell-o-vision, like whatever. Yet. Well, yeah. you're, 
You're one step ahead of me. I haven't showered today, but I did get lipstick on my face. You look lovely. You can get a little blush too. Yes, a little rouge. I, I want to I wanna quickly go back to one thing that came to mind when you were talking about sort of the shift into Zoom and virtual and everything. And I'm wondering if you're seeing at all or if you thought at all about how this could potentially open up clientele to beyond just Austin or sort of the neighborhood. Because now that we are virtual and your teachers are teaching, you know, I'm wondering if you're seeing people who are outside of the region being like, oh, I, I could totally sign up for a class or I want to I work with this teacher. Has that come into the conversation at all? It has. I mean, we're all aware that this this can really open up some of those opportunities. And like when you're in a physical space together too, class size uh, mm. is, is really important, managing the class size. But now it's like, well, everybody can sign up because they're in their mm. own homes participating. So that is a potential um, boost in some ways to uh, the revenue stream or getting some revenue from uh, other places. And of course, it really opens it up to folks outside of Austin, totally. Um, and so it also with, uh, with Lola, you know, going forward and exploring some video options, you know, I think that most performing uh, organizations are probably working really hard to figure out how to create the best sound possible because this is in some way shape or form this is our world forever right like the, mm -hmm. some of this will stick i think right. for a very long time um and uh, i don't think that it's something like okay and now nobody uses zoom for all these millions of things we used zoom for for six months it's like nah, we'll probably be using it for a while there'll probably be lots of older patrons who um, will want to experience art from their homes, um, it's, especially if they're like higher higher risk, you know, with this particular virus and grandparents at the school who live in other places, maybe they want to take, you know, participate virtually with their families. And this, mm. is, you know, that will be a good way for them to do that going on, uh, going forward. But uh, that's, that, that's really an important thing. Um, how is this going to affect like a broader audience and what are the opportunities there you know maybe yeah. really investing in some marketing to folks outside of austin and you know there are a lot of i'm so glad you brought this up it's like now i can brainstorm because there are a lot of rural areas in in texas that don't necessarily have access to music or don't even have like music teachers in their school districts thank you felicia i'm gonna write this too well you know message fee is <laughs> Damn. 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 We'll give, you, um, we'll give you a cut. You know, well, it's funny because we, we have the, we feel the same way. It's like, wow, we can actually reach people that we haven't been able to reach before. Um, so there is, there, that is the upside. Zoom fatigue aside. So, that's great. Um, I like to switch gears because I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I would love to know looking ahead, What's the, what's the big vision for you? What's, what's it look like? <laughs> oh my gosh. The big vision for me is that everyone in the world has access to music. Mm -hmm. That anyone who wants to explore opera, that they feel like they uh, deserve it, that they have the resources available to make that happen in their lives, that they understand that they can commit as much time or as little time to the art form and still be enriched by it in their lives, that they can have fun with it, 
Um, and that goes for other music as well. That people don't feel that there's any barrier between them and this art. That they are beautiful works of art themselves and that their voice is uh, something that the world needs to hear. So mm. that's kind of my big vision. And that the music school um, continues to provide these services, that the music school continues to be a very steady rock in our community. So like even the day-to-day -day of just ensuring that an organization is healthy, like that takes a lot of energy and a lot of thought. Mm -hmm. um, I would love, to, for Lola, I would love to see us tour Lardo Weeping in particular and some other shows. Mm -hmm. We did take uh, La Femme Bohème out and it was fun, but it, that's a lot of work because it's a lot of people. Um, so I think some touring would be great. You know, you talk about engaging with other people in in the in the world um and uh, i think that that would be so much fun plus i'm just like ready to travel i don't know about you all i mean <laughs> i don't know what i would find but i would just like to be in a, another place with some new smells and sights and sounds and languages and just would be such a treat love that i just i'm enjoying this so much because i'm like oh look at felicia's room what is she going <laughs> Look at Rachel's view. Oh, it's so fun. <laughs> I know. And your cute little, it's not a good time. It looks very tiny because I don't know, but I don't know if it's like a spatial. Oh yeah, it is very tiny. Okay. It's a ukulele. It, it is a ukulele. Well, I couldn't tell how far back like, the, wall the wall was. The wall could be very far from here. Exactly. <laughs> I'm in an enormous room. It's just huge. <laughs> like echo, echo, echo. <laughs> <laughs> Um, our last question, which we always like to end with, is to ask our guests, what are you currently geeking out about that's not related to like your work or opera singing? I'm so glad you asked this question. <laughs> there are four things. I'm oh my gosh. Okay. Super, I'll hear them. <laughs> super geeking out about right now. Okay. So birds, birds of all kinds. I'm obsessed with birds right now. I think they're amazing, and I can't believe how many different kinds of birds there are in the world. And that I'm just like, I could sit outside and be like, there are animals flying through the sky right now. Like, like that's happening. They're dinosaurs. They're dinosaurs? They are dinosaurs? <laughs> yes. Do you have a favorite bird? Well, I have, oh, I have lots of dreams and artistic projects in the work. But my sister and I are working on a book about a flamingo and it ties into um, culture. So the book is going to be about this amazing bird and its journey to understanding who it is. And it's a flamingo and it, um, I, I can't give away too much, but it has, it, it, it's a flamenco dancer. So. Oh, it's a flamingo flamenco dancer. Her name is Flo the Flamenco Flamingo. <laughs> And so, you know, it's an unlikely art form for a flamingo, but it like here to the world of art and travel and Spanish culture, but she also performs in France and Italy. Anyway, she goes, she has a, just this like really rich life. So I'm partial to flamingos at the moment. I mean, yeah. I get that. I actually um, got to see some flamingos making out, which was kind of special because they have wow. beaks. Were they they were like, yeah, it looked like they were kissing. Like their beaks were just together and they were making like a heart shape. It was really lovely. Oh, when you come, when you come back to San Diego and the zoo opens, we will go. I would love that. And I can pretend I'm on three's company. That's right. No. 
<laughs> I'm so sad because I did think it was that Three's Company was from San Diego. It turns out it was the Santa Monica Pier. So I feel a little really oh, sad well, about that. That's, That's true. Is for. That's <laughs> true. You're they, right. Didn't they say they were in San, San Diego though? I thought they were, but then I looked it up and they weren't. Trip. I don't know. I don't know either anyway because that's one you have three what, more what's two three four let's get them okay the other one is i'm on the search for the perfect limoncello Are you with limoncello yes do you um, want to do you want to tell our listeners what that is just in case so it's a um it's a lemon liqueur and it's uh i think its origins are in italy it's an italian tradition so a lot of the limoncellos are from Italy, but you can make your own. I think I'm going to try it. You can make your own with vodka or grain alcohol, lemon rinds, and sugar, 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 sugar. Wow. I, I'm, I'm yeah. only laughing because I was literally talking about this last night with my fiance. I went to Italy last summer with my family on a family trip. I got a little bottle of limoncello. I haven't opened it yet because I'm working the way through the rest of the liquor cabinet at the moment. Mm -hmm. But last night, we've been doing this whole like homesteading thing. He walks up to me. By the way, he doesn't drink. He walks up to me and he's like, I think we should make our own limoncello. And I'm like... <laughs> A, no. B, I have a whole bottle that I haven't opened yet. C, I'm the only one who's going to be drinking it. So. No, well, he can make it and just give it to you. How about That's that? basically the way their relationship works. It's pretty amazing. He cooks and bakes for her. So it's oh, like, that's great. Anyway, it's really I don't want to, I don't want to distract. So that's two. So now what about three and four? Um, three and four are television shows. Okay. Uh, and I'm going to go yeah. highbrow and then I'll finish with lowbrow. Okay. Perfect. Two TV shows I've been really geeking out over. Uh, My Brilliant Friend on HBO. No, I don't know that one. How do I not know this? It's unbelievable. And speaking of Italian culture, it takes place in a little town right outside of Naples, sort of um, post-World War II. And so there's this dialect that they're speaking that's um, a dialect of Southern Italy that's really interesting to listen to at first when I was watching it, when I started watching it, I knew nothing about it. And I was like, oh, is that Portuguese? Is that Italian? And it turns out it's this really um, interesting dialect from Southern Italy. It also focuses on people not knowing what to do with females who are bright and intelligent. <laughs> the age old question, I what mean, to I... do with a smart woman? Yeah, why, what do you do? I guess we'll just tell her she can't go to school, I don't know. <laughs> So, um, so there's, it's a, it's a it's kind of a tough show to watch and there's some violence, um, but I don't feel it's gratuitous. I, I feel like it's a super high quality show that I'm just obsessed with it right now, but I have awesome. to, I do have to digest it in small portions. I can't binge it now, but I can binge was hundred percent bingeable. And, uh, I'm, you know, I'm just going to be proud to say this, a show that I've discovered that has saved my life these past few months. Um, a show called Below Deck on Bravo. I don't Ooh, know. A Bravo show. <laughs> it is amazing. Below Deck focuses on a crew, um, on a yacht crew during the sea, the yacht season, which I guess is some six weeks in, I don't know, February or March. And uh, madness ensues. Every it's it's a reality show, right? With like a crew. Yeah. Of, of, yeah. So, and they're all like horrible people, basically. Uh, Most of them, some of them. 
Yeah, you know, they have their moments. They have their <laughs> moments. It goes up and down. But I, I have, um, I've developed a crush on Captain Lee. I hope you won't judge me for that. Oh, I'm going to watch it, oh and God, then I'm going I'm to judge you. And see what we, what my judgment, where it will fall. No, I'm definitely going to judge oh. you. I might judge you well. I feel a little, I feel a little strange even saying that out loud. <laughs> I don't know what it is about him. Uh, and in later I have seasons, to this right now. Yeah, in later seasons, he starts wearing some like floral shirts that look really good. He's always like leaning back in his chair when he talks to people. He always seems like a, he's a little too relaxed. I don't know what it is about him. I, 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 he makes me mad, and I'm also attracted to him. He's an older gentleman. Yeah, and like, what does it say about me? Oh, something, something going on. All right, I judge, I judge favorably. Really? Why? I don't know. He he looks, based on the Google search images, he looks like he's worthy of a crush. I don't know. He looks authoritative. Mm -hmm. He's got like a full head of white hair and a beard. I do like a man with a beard. I I think you like the stripes. I think that's what it is. You like the power of the stripes. I'm not usually a uniform person. Maybe it's because he's like on a yacht or something. Maybe. <laughs> the images I see, he's like got his arms crossed, like a little like. Mm-mm. Yeah, he's always like, mm-hmm, don't, don't piss me off. There are only three rules. Don't embarrass yourself. Don't embarrass the boat. And we don't drink on charter. So anyway, <laughs> that's, from, that's from Below Deck. Well, we will be linking to that in the show notes. Uh, in a very short time, I have watched almost six seasons. So, uh, uh, yeah. This that. is what this is right. what the pandemic has brought us. So it's okay. <laughs> Stay space. Um, so I want I just want to wrap things up by seeing if are there any is where can people find you? Uh, where can't they find me? <laughs> uh, I'll tell you. You can tell find me, me um, several places. LizCassOpera.com. I'll try to update my website if you're going to go there. <laughs> yeah, when's this episode airing? Tomorrow. Uh, Just kidding. Just, ah! No. What <laughs> <laughs> to do? Uh, so LizCass, LizCassOpera.com. And I've got uh, LolaAustin.org. And our music school is ACMS, ACMS. M S Austin.org stands for Armstrong community music school. And can I also just like link to your Instagram account too? Cause it's hilarious. Heck yes. It's all about birds right now. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> I do a bird of the day video. It gets me up in the morning. That's amazing. Exciting. All right. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for participating and talking with us. This was unsurprisingly a true delight. Oh my, I am so delighted. Thank you. I hope I made sense. I hope I said something that was helpful. You did. Many things. Thanks to all our listeners for spending some time geeking out with us. If you enjoyed listening, please rate and review us on iTunes. Every review helps. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next interview. And tell all your friends. New episodes drop every Tuesday. (laughs) Check us out at She Geeks Out on all the things. And in case you're wondering what those things are, they are Twitter, Insta, FB, otherwise known as Facebook, LinkedIn, and our website, of course. Bye, Rachel. Bye, Felicia. Bye, Felicia.